Welcome to the Pearl of Great Price podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's the 15th of May. And on this day in Christian history, we go back to the year 1891. And we travel to Rome. Where Pope Leo XIII released the encyclical Rerum Novarum, which means of new things. The new things that the encyclical addressed referred to the rapidly changing social landscape that had resulted in the light of the Industrial Revolution and the revolutionary change that was spreading around the world as a result. The Industrial Revolution had begun in Britain about 130 years earlier and for more than a generation remained confined to Britain as the export of machinery, skilled workers and manufacturing techniques had been discouraged. However, around about 1807, two Englishmen started developing machine shops in Liège in Belgium. And Belgium became the first country in continental Europe to be transformed economically. This would soon spread around the world. These transformations were shaping societies in profoundly different ways. Technologically, socio-economically and culturally. The use of new materials, especially iron and steel, and new energy sources such as coal, had ushered in a new age of construction, mining and heating. Inventions such as the steam engine, electricity, petroleum and the internal combustion engine would slowly begin even to reshape international relations as access to raw materials and energy security became a pressing concern, particularly the sourcing and the securing of oil and coal deposits. The increasing application of science to industry the invention of new machines such as the spinning jenny and the power loom allowed increased production with a smaller expenditure of human energy and effort. These more efficient machines led to a reaction as traditional workers such as weavers felt threatened. A secret group called the Luddites emerged in England as a radical faction of textile workers started destroying machines as a form of protest. The group were named after Ned Ludd, a weaver from Ansey near Leicester. And this social turmoil was exacerbated by a huge migration of labour from the countryside to growing towns as a new organisation of work known as the factory system emerged. This entailed increased division of labour and a specialisation of functions. The quality of life in the sprawling slum areas of these newly growing towns was grim and living and working conditions were harsh. In England, Christians responded to these new lifestyles with the growth of a temperance movement, the Salvation Army, see the pod of April 10th, and they also promoted health through organised sports, 
inspired by a movement called Muscular Christianity. See the pod of April the 25th. The politically minded, such as the Methodist Keir Hardy, started to develop political representation for the emerging labour force of factory workers, miners, etc. That's covered in the pod of February the 27th. All of this was happening alongside important developments in transportation, communication, including the steam locomotive, steamship, automobile, aeroplane, telegraph and radio. With the mass production of manufactured goods, the relationship between employers and employees was changing dramatically. Some individuals have become very wealthy, but the wealth was not shared and the vast majority remained poor even though they worked hard. A German philosopher, Karl Heinrich Marx, developed critical theories about this emerging society its economics and politics. And he argued that human societies developed through class conflict. Because his political publications were calling for radical change, Marx became stateless and lived in exile with his wife and children in London for decades, where he continued to develop his thought, researching in the reading room of the British Museum. His best-known publications were a pamphlet in 1848 called the Communist Manifesto and later the three-volume Das Kapital. In Kapital, he aimed to reveal the economic patterns underpinning the capitalist mode of production. But he did not live to publish the planned second and third part, which were completed from his notes and published after his death by his colleague Frederick Engels. His work laid the basis for theories about labour and its relation to capital, and this led to a series of violent revolutions around the world as some countries emerged from agrarian feudalism. It was in this context, as political change swept across Europe, that Pope Leo XIII's encyclical spoke of the condition of these new working classes at a time when many were advocating revolution. Now considered by some to be a masterful attempt to warn both of the illusions of capitalism and the abuses of socialism, the encyclical tries to keep a middle ground. It recognises that a lack of workers' unions contributed to an unjust situation, with conditions sometimes little better than slavery. On the other hand, it also asserts that everyone has by nature the right to possess property, and so rules out the elimination of private property and communal ownership. Private ownership was not only lawful, but absolutely necessary in maintaining the structure of the family, the encyclical argued. 
A worker ought to be given the opportunity to live sparingly, save money and invest his savings for the future. The defence of private property was also balanced by an exposition of what was called the universal destination of goods. This is the principle that God made the goods of the earth for use of all men and women so that all would be fed, clothed and sheltered. Property rights and free trade were instruments for respecting the greater principle of the universal destination of goods. The encyclical also defends the right of workers to have time for their religious duties and encouraged workers and employers to negotiate a just wave wage demanded by natural justice to ensure these rights and duties they maintained that workers associations ought to exist to work towards the common good the genius of such an encyclical may be a testament to a Pope's unique ability to source educated opinions from different parts of the world and to merge them into something cohesive, drawing on ancient philosophical and theological currents. Rerum Novarum balanced complex tensions in a climate where political ideology was dividing into extremes. Promulgated 40 years after Marx had published his Communist Manifesto. And one of the voices that the Pope was listening closely to was the Archbishop of Westminster, Cardinal Manning, who was a great exponent of Catholic social doctrine. Very close to Leo's predecessor, Pius IX, the convert Manning had used his goodwill to develop a modern Catholic view of social justice. And this thinking of his had been tested in real life and in his own pastoral engagement. He had played a very important and successful role in mediating the London dock strike. And he had caused a stir in 1887, four years before the encyclical, by saying that a starving man was not stealing if he took the food he needed from his neighbour. The natural life, the natural right to life and food prevailed even over the laws of property. And you can see the podcast of March the 15th for more about him and his role in the development of Catholic social teaching. The encyclical has inspired a large amount of Catholic social literature, but it also reached a wide non-Catholic audience who were impressed by its reasonableness. Without recommending one form of government over another, it put forth principles for the appropriate role of the state to provide for the common good. Asserting that all people have equal dignity regardless of social class. It strongly argued against the central supervision of the state, 
criticising socialism for seeking to replace the rights and the duties of parents, families and communities. However, it also maintained that authority should only intervene when a family or community was unable or unwilling to fulfil its mutual rights and duties of subsidiarity. It states the principle of God's preferential option for the poor. Saying that God himself seems to incline rather to those who suffer misfortune. For Jesus Christ calls the poor blessed. He lovingly invites those who labour and grieve to come to him for solace. And he displays the tenderest charity towards the lowly and the oppressed. This preferential option for the poor would be developed more fully in radically different ways by later theologians, particularly in the liberation theology movement that emerged in South America after the Second Vatican Council. However, what some of the liberationists, often middle-class Spaniards, ignored was that Rerum Navarum was also a clear criticism of the illusions of socialism. It is now often taught in theology courses as a primer of the Catholic response to the exploitation of workers. And from a socialist perspective, it was it is uncomfortably situated between labourers and industrialists. And acknowledging that whilst it opened up space for anti-capitalist critique, it also severely restricted its horizons. Rerum Novarum's legacy is significant and ongoing. In 1930, many of the key ideas from the encyclical were incorporated into Portuguese law. And in 1931, Pope Pius XI wrote Quadragesimo Anno, the 40th year, to develop this body of Catholic social thought in another encyclical. It is almost unique, and maybe is unique, to have an encyclical marking the anniversary of a previous encyclical. And this was a sign of how it had been, Rerum Novarum had been received, and the growing influence of Catholic social teaching as its own body of thought. Quadragesimo Anno looked at the major dangers for human freedom and dignity arising from unrestrained capitalism, socialism, and totalitarian communism. And after World War I, it called for the reconstruction of the social order based on the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity. It is thought that the German Jesuits were particularly influential in writing this encyclical. Marking the centenary of Rerum Novarum in 1991, John Paul II wrote Centesimus Annus. Written during the last days of the Cold War, 
it refutes communist ideology and condemns the dictatorial regimes that have practiced it. It also compares socialism to consumerism and identifies atheism as a source of their common denial, the dignity of the human person. That's all from the Pearl of Great Price today. Join us tomorrow if you can as we look at the intriguing story of Brendan the Navigator, an Irish monk who could have discovered America 500 years before the Vikings and nearly a thousand years before Columbus. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and leave a comment on the blog if you have time at www.pogp.net. And if you'd like to respond directly, then email the show on pogppod at gmail.com. Have a lovely day wherever you are, and thanks for listening.